the same as leaders. It's, it's you're no longer in control. Mm. And mm. actually, a lot of it is becoming more passive and, 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 and allowing the kind of energetic complexity emerge. Mm. Seeing the patterns where you can where you need to intervene where they don't really understand what they're doing. But other than that, just trust the emergence. Mm. How do we navigate the challenges of the new world of work? How can we do things differently, transforming our people and our organisations for the better? It turns out there's quite a lot of later stage people in there, but they're hiding. One of the things that surprised us when we first started working with the VUCA skills is how bad they were. Like, nobody had well, them. The confusing aspect of, of the transformation process and to consider in their own mind, maybe something right is going on with me. Who is challenging our thinking and living at the edge of work? What can we all do to embrace new ways of working? Uh, the reality is not a single job is without embrace. Around that want to, want to try a different way of working, I think now's a really unique opportunity to do so. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I'm Dave Yates. And I'm Peter Holiday. Today we've got Dr. Richard Clayton. He's the Chief Cognitive Officer of EQ Labs, an extended intelligence network focused on the future of leadership, culture, management, engagement, and risk. Uh, his research on value-creating behaviours in toxic, rigid, autocratic organisational environments has been described as a touchstone for the future of work, management, and organisation. Outstanding and daring in imagination and thinking at the forefront of modern discussion and debate. He teaches the leadership module of the Macquarie Business School, world-leading, future-focused, global MBA. And we've got the pleasure of speaking to him for just on uh, an hour and a bit today. So thanks very much and welcome, Richard. Well, Richard, welcome. Welcome. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah. Well, really thanks appreciate for turning it. up. Yeah, definitely. Um, where do you join us from? Uh, I'm sitting in my, actually in my bedroom, which is my work from home office uh, in the middle of <laughs> Hong Kong, or actually the east, the eastern side of Hong Kong, um, in the middle of our biggest lockdown so far. Oh, wow. Really? And how long has that been going on for now? Well, we've, we've had sort of variations of the lockdown for about two years. Um, but yep. now, now we've got ridiculous rates of COVID, fortunately, mainly Omicron. But um, yeah, it's we, we've been in this kind of, situation now since january i think oh, wow so oh, wow. a couple of months so in and, months. in and out in and out depending uh, on the cases or just uh, an increasing degree of you can't do anything um i don't think we've ever been <laughs> as badly we've never been as badly impacted as you you were in australia where you weren't really allowed to even go for a walk at times mm. um you know we yep. were always we're allowed out but it's pouring with rain so that doesn't help <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's literally if, if you're outside ever, you have to have a mask on, even when you're hiking in the middle of nowhere, you've got yeah. a mask and, and things like that. So we're, we're in that situation. Mm. Yeah, don't want to give the raccoons COVID, right? Out no, in the no. of the forest somewhere. Excellent. So, once again, thanks, uh, thanks for joining the podcast and thanks for taking the time out from your what seems like very wet and restricted day. <laughs> Um, to talk about it, to talk to us about the future of work and transformation into the future of work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are and where you've ended up at the moment and the kind of work that you're currently engaged at or with? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've always been in sort of adult education in organisations. That was sort of what I've always done is 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 teach. I mean, I used to teach soft communications and um, negotiation skills and actually effective reading, given the amount of emails that we have and, and stuff like that. But I did a PhD on organisational irony um, back in. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's amazing. That, 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 that's ironic. That's the podcast. Mm. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> We're done. So, yeah, I, I genuinely have a doctorate in irony. Um, and um, that that sort of informs the work I, I do now. And, and so the basic, we, we also call it misbehaviorism and, um, and stuff like that, where we're looking at really the notion that the current systems that we've designed um, are causing absurdities in, in, in organizations. And, and the, the challenge of saying this is absurd, uh, actually you get your head cut off and, and you get fired and you're you know you, you're seen as a troublemaker who doesn't fit. Mm. Um, and what we're looking at, and, and, and COVID has been really good for this because people are now beginning to take it quite seriously that actually the systems that we have in place are, are causing harm and not health. Mm. Uh, and what do, we, what do we need to do about it? So that, that's the kind of stuff that, that I, I do research-wise and, and intervention-wise. Uh, we then, we, we, we have, we're really focused on building extended intelligence networks on, so this is no longer just you've got collective intelligence within a team, but you're moving into other aspects of, of the internet and your extended network to start solving challenges. And we look at leadership, uh, culture, and we're going to talk a lot about those two, uh, engagement, risk, management as, as the five kind of things that within this notion of work is, is massively transforming and, and we have to reimagine them all. Mm. Mm. And you do this as part of a university too, I believe? So I, I teach uh, the leadership module for Macquarie Business School's Global MBA. Um, so that I wrote it, I, I wrote it, I, I designed the whole thing from scratch, which is a very unusual thing to get to do as an academic, because normally you inherit somebody else's course. Uh, if I was do, doing it again today, I'd redesign it even further. I mean, I think it, it, it's my, my thinking has moved on a lot since then. So I think it was about three years ago I designed it. But um, yeah, it, it's a real opportunity to sort of say, hey, look, there's all this other stuff about leadership. That in the mainstream you don't get any access to, um, and let let's talk about that in an MBA program to try and you know, get you ready earlier for yeah. leadership positions, and so that's what I try and do with that program. So, what was what were the main insights you felt? Um, I guess not only did you feel were useful, but have landed and made us made a significant impact in teaching the course that you redesigned. Um, so, I mean, basically what I do and the reason, because like, I've left academia and they asked me to come back and, and, and for one reason that they wanted someone quite radical. Um, and the second reason was they're looking at putting human behavior in the center of the MBA. So a classic MBA model, is, a classic MBA is you do all of the functional stuff, like learn marketing, learn strategy, learn finance, et cetera. And then you mm -hmm. might do as an elective organizational behavior or leadership. And they went, no, no, no we're going to do that at the center. Okay, that's, first of all, you understand human behavior in a complex system, and then you can understand the other aspects of the system. So that, that's the big thing that I think uh, I took away from it. And the students, when there's something like 600 reviews on, online for it, and that's what they're saying. They're saying that, you know, that this, this kind of human experience of leadership, what it means as, as, a, as a human navigating a complex system mm. is what I'm taking from this course. And the fact it's not the same stuff that you get everywhere else. Uh, it gives me, uh, I mean, I get really, it's just like I have more pathways I can walk 
as mm-hmm. a leader in yeah. these systems. Yeah. So that's that's what people seem to get out of it. Yeah. And what would be the specific topics you might take people through in that particular uh, pace, so, part so of the course? This, yeah, there's different ways. There's different ways of looking at it. So one level, you're just going right. You're, you're looking at the leader, the leadership self, mm-hmm. um, yep. leading a, leading a team, leading leading a department, leading an organization, leading something that's bigger than an organization. So you've got that kind of that kind of multi level. But you're also going through a um, a model of this is what leadership used to look like. So a historical chronological mm. model. So so like you're going from great man theory in the 1840s through to and the progressive leadership theories that it that, that it clashed with. And then you sort of go, well, you know, most normal most psychologists today say that that's irrelevant and it's not, and you can prove it's not. And then you go into the scientific management models of, of leadership and management being sort of the same thing. And it's this progressive understanding of, of, of how you create a scientific model of work. And then you go into the transformational leadership stuff from the, the sort of 1960s, 1980s uh, onwards. And you say, well, all of these are different ways of thinking about the discipline of leadership. Mm. None of them are particularly useful in themselves <laughs> nowadays. You actually have to be in a much more collective sense-making model. You, you, you have to be able to follow as well as lead. You have to leave your ego at the door. That, that hierarchy doesn't really work anymore. So you're trying to move them into stuff as what does that look like? So you go classically into here are the, here are the leadership styles, here are the contingency leadership models that are quite difficult to understand. This is how they apply today. And here's some extra styles that you need to understand. Uh, this is, uh, we throw in a bit of complexity science, we throw in the reason that bad behaviours happen. Um, and so that you'll be, you're beginning to try and negotiate this complexity uh, from a leadership position. And, and then I would do stuff around um, sort of developmental psychology and, and, and how you get into these higher levels where you see, you, you don't follow the rules of the system, but you see the <laughs> system from outside. Mm-hmm. And then yep. you also are aware of other systems and you start rewriting the rules. Is you know How do I actually get information from other systems to make this better? Mm-hmm. And then you look at how do you, one of the things I'm really interested in is how do you look at the adaptive leadership? And this is really... I've got a bunch of experts in my organization who are being paid to be experts in their subject matter. And we're now dealing with a complex problem where expertise is no longer actually helpful. It's actually mm. getting easier. <laughs> it is. And yes. How do we get these experts to throw off the mantle of expertise and get involved in an adaptive complex environment and, mm. and contribute properly? Mm. And that, that's what I'm really interested in, in, in mm. what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I just I actually just wrote a post on LinkedIn the other day about the Dunning-Kruger Club and rule one of the Dunning-Kruger Club is you don't know you're in Dunning-Kruger Club, which is a lot of these things that you talk about with the executive where they've got their mantle of expertise and it makes them a man of expertise in everything rather mm. than actually going like, actually, you know what, I'm just, I've just got a bit of expertise in this and then when it comes to something that's not this, I can actually mm. go, I don't know about this or I'm not an expert in this. Maybe someone who's even at a lower level of hierarchy than me, they know more. Maybe I I should be able to at a higher level shake off that ego of knowing everything and be able to ask someone at a lower level that's got more knowledge about something. But they just, they just can't do it. It's really well, interesting. And this is part of the classic leadership development challenge because it's really based, most leadership development models are now based on something, ideas from the 60s and 70s. And yeah, they, I agree. 
they basically look at, um, well, there's one thing you do is you become the, the situational leadership model, which is basically, um, okay, I'm the, I'm the expert and how do I treat the people with less, less expertise than me? Mm-hmm. So if you go up yeah, through yeah. the stages, you, you sort of go from, right, I'm directing and now I'm coaching and now I'm supporting and now I'm delegating. So expertise is built into the model and mm-hmm. lack of expertise yeah. means I just tell you what to do. Mm. There's no notion in that model of like none of, now none of us are experts and, and mm. what do we, we do with that? And then you have the transformational leadership model, which is the other one that sort of gets taught, or and you could sort of transformational stroke authentic because they're both as the, the different sides of the same coin. And then the leader's the superhero. Mm, and yeah. then and then so either way, you've you've got models that no longer fit with the current reality. So you've got to move into, into something different whilst yeah. still making people aware that these models exist. Because mm. if you don't, if they're not aware those models exist, they're not aware of how everybody else is expecting them to behave. Yeah. And that's the um, I mean, it, it, both of those become uh, and you've you've sort of said it already, but it's become self-deprecating to a certain extent because they the, the superhero never gets the succession planning they need to transcend their own position because they're constantly the center and the expert, the second something happens in their team, they're stepping down into a role to do the expert work of the person that's moved on or the person that's sick or whatever, or things have got, I mean, I've seen this firsthand, things have gotten really hard or a client deadline has shifted and the leader now has to take on the mantle and be the hero or whatever. (laughs) And they're not leading anymore. They're doing grunt work because they're there instead of going, well, no, I'm, I, I probably need to be a, a, a well-formed leader here. How do I delegate this problem? How do I build uh, a complex system of different people? How do I bring in extra help? Um, rather than stepping into the expert role and doing it yourself and yeah, showing and, and, the world that you're I mean, awesome. you're, you're, you're summing up the challenge. I mean, that, yeah. that's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the embeddedness of these models in, in the development process and, and also the popular press about what leadership should look like and mm-hmm. how, how do you yeah. escape from it? And, and yeah. that's, that's the big problem. And that's what I try and deal with in my work is escaping what? from the popular models. Just listen to it. On, you, and you, I, I'm sure that you, this is just going to ring true for you too, Richard, but you get leadership development and in organisations and then you go to the point where you go design a really advanced complex systems, you know, vertical development, got all the, you know, the new kind of really, and then it goes to a senior manager and they go, no, just, just keep it simple. But, and it's like, but you can't keep it, like your environment is not simple. So your leadership capacities aren't simple capacities anymore and you need to not be resting on your last 25 years of getting to where you are it's an excuse i'm going to say yes and no it depends on the client oh so i most clients yes that's exactly so basically yeah. what happens is that they, they 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 you'll have the whole initial talk with them and they're really interested in creating like we, we call it like mini leadership mba kind of programs and it's this mm-hmm. coherent program where they get to do it all and very often it's like no we just want seven modules that people can pick and choose from our learning system and, and there's no there's no coherence in it anymore yeah. but if we do get into a, a program where they say like we're going to actually do something serious and we're going to do a coherent kind of with coaching embedded and and, and yeah. development um what we found when we've done that and i have to be very careful not telling you the client names but what yeah. we found when we've done that is um 
quite often we'll be working in APAC and it will be a global client and then there will be European providers or American providers doing the leadership development elsewhere. And we will be, we will get, we will absolutely slaughter them in, in the, the, the feedback from the employees and the application of the ideas and their work. And these are often big business schools teaching traditional kind of, and, and they'll go, no, yeah. no, you're, this, this is what works because we're doing this kind of applied um, model. Um, so yeah, th- there are some clients that we've had that that sort of go, wow, wow, this is the future of leadership. Um, how do we turn this into the global program rather than use these these traditional providers that they've been using for 10, 15 years? And yeah. COVID is COVID has been a real help for us because previously they would have just flown everyone they would have flown the 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 people from the uk out to go and deliver locally and then they'd have had a, a, a you know a week-long workshop or something a week maybe a week-long um uh, strategy sessions leadership sessions etc but they can't do that and the europeans wouldn't do it in asia because they were asleep so they had to go to other providers and, and we would have never got a foot in the door and, until that started to happen. And now we have, there's an awareness, wow, there's, there's different stuff out there and this is more useful. So that it does, it's rare, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm interesting, I was, I was left thinking in sort of some of the earlier parts of the conversation, but it, it carries through still here. You mentioned, you know, we're carrying a lot of leadership from the 60s and the 80s and a lot of these <laughs> concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, what role, I don't know exactly how to formulate this question. So give me a chance to have a couple of goes maybe, but what role does agency play or the changing theme of agency through work? Cause I feel like agency at work in the sixties is very different to what it was in the eighties. <laughs> very, very, very different to what it is post COVID. Like what role has yeah. agency played in the demands on leadership? Okay, so I'm gonna. This is probably about a four-stage answer, and and we'll come back. Fire away! <laughs> this is why we're gonna podcast. We'll come back to the the actual agency need because I think this is this is quite recent. The current demand, a, a gentle mm-hmm. demand. So I'm gonna go into back into why I think there's a problem with leadership and culture, okay. and then we can go into the the personalized agency fire away stuff. Go, go so, for it. So when, when we what we're looking at, we're going right back here to Kurt Levine's work in the 1930s. I don't know if you've read any or Kurt Lewin. Most people would pronounce it, but it's is German pronunciation oh. and he he if you ever talk about leadership styles that's his work okay right. it's the foundational yeah. work on leadership styles and of course the three classic leadership styles are um autocratic uh, or directive um democratic or participative and, and laissez-faire or delegative okay they're, they're the three classic styles that you're gonna um and it's one of the few exper- leadership experiments ever done so he didn't just theorize it. He, he actually devised an experiment um, and he, he practiced what was the response of the agents uh, to the, these three different styles in, in experiential conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he was actually looking at was, it is, this is important, it was the, the aggressive behaviors when doing emergent work mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. the three different leadership styles. The context was emergent work. So it was people doing like craft work, collaborative craft work was was what they were. They weren't they weren't skilled at it, but but and they were like, right, are you going to build something that's useful? And then you'd have you'd be led in three different ways. 
Um, so this only talks, it's only relevant to that context of its emergent work. And of course, a lot of what we're talking about is emergent work. So yeah, it's work. becoming really commonplace. So you go, right, okay, first of all, laissez-faire, which they invented. Um, they, they, it didn't exist as a term. And they actually said, well, this, this style is sort of different. What, what, what is it? What's going on? Um, so if you've got a delegative or laissez-faire leadership style, you have high levels of aggression in every agent underneath it. Okay, so you've got this aggressive, this ongoing aggressive atmosphere with mm -hmm. people fighting each other and disagreeing with each other and just genuinely, but generally being toxic. Doesn't matter whether the leader is in the room or out of the room, the toxicity stays the same because they, there's no psychological tension going on when the leader's there because he's just laissez fair anyway. So let's just carry on. Mm -hmm. okay, so you've got that high level of toxicity. Um, if you've got an autocratic leader, um, you've then got. Uh, sort of apathy and submissive behaviors when the leader is in the room. And when the leader leaves, you've got outbreaks of bullying and scapegoating. So you've got these sudden eruptions and it's blaming somebody that it's your fault. We could just, so you're, you're stopping everything, it's your fault and you get this kind of scapegoating effect. And then if you get the, the democratic and participative stuff, you just sort of tend to get good quality work. Um, and so way, the way we're looking at this today is okay, the, the, the Emergent work is, is the current condition. So this is this is becoming more and more relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and because there yeah. are very few experiments, we have to go back to the foundational work. And we have, if you look at culture and management today, culture mm -hmm. is a laissez-faire normative controlled mechanism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you basically have your values and you have your behavior. If you have sophisticated, those values will be broken into behaviors and you go, right, okay, just, just internalize these behaviors and values and live that way. <laughs> There's no, there's no control other than the laissez-faire internalization. So therefore, if the work is emergent, what you should be seeing is higher and higher levels of general toxicity in the organization. Mm -hmm. And then you've got management being trained and the management tends to be trained and promoted because of their ability, technical ability, not the human ability. Mm -hmm. And they think that work looks like directive, directive kind of planning and controlling and decision-making over the team. And so therefore you're going to get apathy and passivity in the team with these outbreaks of, of bad behavior, et cetera. Right at the top of the organization, most leadership teams tend to still be a little bit participative. Mm -hmm. So they're separated from the body of the organization doing participative democratic kind of, oh, this is really interesting. Oh, let's do this strategy. And they're all talking together and mm -hmm. getting that kind of model. But none of the rest of the organization is doing that. So the head and the body is separated. Yes. And the head feels everything's going well. And the body is this toxic mess where everybody's getting ill. <laughs> that, that's, that's the way that I look at the experiential research mm -hmm. in terms of contemporary conditions where you still got this, this fetishization of leadership, the fetishization of culture, uh, engagement models and experience models underneath where people are and risk models where people aren't really telling the truth classic management models interfering with all of this mm. uh, and then emergent work in complex systems going on all the time mm -hmm. and that, so that's I, I i haven't met anyone yet when i describe that behavioral environment you know, oh yeah i see that all the time and you do we see it all the time as well so yeah it's definitely that something is... that front and center i think that's when you were talking we were just smiling because mm -hmm. we've definitely had the privilege of witnessing exactly those behaviors that you know it, literally exactly as you've described them 
So, yeah, I think. So then the agency thing there is, right, and the agency, and this is why I think the agency is, is very emergent as well, because we've all had globally two years of experience of very different organisational conditions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And part of those organisational conditions, especially at the beginning, was a greater degree of agency in how we did the work. Mm-hmm. Okay, because Great. we suddenly dislocated from organisational systems that, that are no longer controlling how we work. And we're like, oh, well, you know what, I'm, a much, I'm much more productive now. I've got a bit more control of my time. Um, and so if you, look at, if you look at the classic work from home research, which pre-existed COVID, um, there's three things that you need to be doing to, in order to work from home well. And the, the work from home, it's the first one is focus. Can I create a space where I'm totally focused and I'm not being distracted by electronic information or other people? Um, do I have flexibility in terms of the, the, the technologies that I can use and the media that I have access to? So can I actually use the stuff that seems relevant to me to do the work? Um, and also, do I have the freedom to manage my time and, and to do all of the things that, um, you know, if I can go take my dog for a walk or I can go and spend an hour talking to my neighbours or whatever. It, and if those three thick conditions are in place, uh, well, higher, higher productivity, higher levels of engagement, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so there's, there's lots of agency in that. Um, and people don't want to give that up by going back into these toxic environments where you've got the you've got the, this kind of systemic control of, of behavior. Um, what they what organizations need to do is when they if they are pulling people back into the office, is create um, environments in which uh, collective agency becomes possible. And so then you've got, you know, actually the, the chatting of people in in over breaking bread and, and stuff like that, plus collaborative um environments where where you're actually doing proper collaborative work and by proper collaborative work i don't mean putting 25 people in a room and everyone puts their computer screens up and starts tapping away it's like, <laughs> okay, get rid of get rid of the tech all the tech can be at home when mm. you're in the office collaborative work is going to be low tech or no tech mm. um, and so you can design around that um, so that that's that's sort of what i'm looking at in terms of um a sort of collective agency model versus an individual agency model and, and people do not want to give up that increased agency they've experienced over the last couple of years. Oh, without a doubt. It's it's something we're seeing. I mean, it, you know, we're recording this at the start of 2022 and, you know, there's half half of the world's talking about, you know, the new normal and stay at home. Mm. We're going to figure this out. And the half of the world's going, get back to the office. Everyone get back in. We're going to make this work in the city. We need to win need to have everyone working together side by side or however they're pitching it there's this we're at loggerheads with ourselves culturally to go what is the natural expectation and for those um those i've speak spoken to you know single person perspective here but nonetheless anecdotally those who are being forced to go back to the office i'd say eight out of ten are kind of begrudging going back to the office there's mm. two there's two out of ten that are like i am so ready to not be at home anymore i need people in my life yeah yeah um, and you you're, you're going to see you're going to see variations at the per- and so this is where the personalized kind of agency mm. comes in you're going to see variations at the personalized level yeah but this is this is where i think work needs to go is how do you create a hyper personalized uh, kind of working experience yeah. yeah um where where you've got those who want to stay at home more regularly um can stay at home more regularly and those who want to come to the office can come into the office and you, you're beginning to hyper personalize it so with within within the the um sort of demands that you've still got to do two types of work well the collective and the individual mm-hmm. 
Yes. Right. Because uh, you, you can't just go, right, I'm just going to do individual work and I'm never going to be part of the collective because I don't like coming in. Yeah. But yeah. you can't also be, um, I'm only ever going to do collective work and I'm never going to sit down in front of my computer and, and do it. So, so you've got those kind of things that you're balancing. And then you've got the high, the person, the hyper-personalized kind of, well, what am I, how am I going to do this? And I think we're, we're at the early stages of thinking about this at the moment. Mm. But when they're pulling people back into the offices, so I think that's a different challenge. I think this is because the leaders don't feel special in the digitalized world anymore. <laughs> I agree. I tend to think. And I, there was a, I can't remember whose podcast it might have been. It might have been the Brave New Work or Aaron Dignan's podcast, I think. Um, where he was talking about that, just basically saying it's, you know, a lot of the 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 show and the, you know, the, the expression that leaders have is being able to hold court in meetings and do all those kinds of things. And that's half of their work almost. And that evaporated overnight to a certain extent. So they're now sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, well, what is now the work that I do if I can't hold court and I, you know, I can't do these things that I've done for you know most majority of my working life you know yeah. people are off individually powered with their own agency and they can book meetings and work together whenever they want and i don't get to corral everyone in and get everyone listen to what i have to say anymore yeah and that's so that that's sort of you know the challenge for leaders is that they, they were suddenly a little tiny box on a, on a, on a computer screen rather totally. than all the status system status symbols around them and they've got the big chair at the end of the board table and, and all of this kind of stuff and they're like I, I, and you can sort of say they've got they've worked really hard to get there, so they sort of go, "Well, I, totally. I deserve I deserve this. This is you know I mm. I've I've been at the other end of this table and I've had to take it. Now it's my turn to sit at the top, and I deserve it." But yeah. the world has changed, and so that it, it's about how do you how do these leaders reimagine leadership yeah. when that sitting at the 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 head of a board table is no longer enough, mm. and and the status symbols that. That they've they've sort of gathered is no is no not actually doing anything. Nobody cares anymore. Mm. Um, so they, so the leaders are trying to call people back into the office because of that kind of I I I, I deserve this almost mm. and and I feel like I'm not in control of the organisation. Yeah, which was always mythical, but they they felt yeah, exactly there that they were totally. And some of it some of it is that autocratic leader wanting that control back but mm. i find it really interesting one of the things that stuck with me is i could really count half a dozen of them that i'm that i've witnessed and spoken to but they definitely exist and they would exist at, at largely every company is the leaders that really invested in trying to be a new type of leader and and have done the work to develop situational awareness emotional intelligence have worked on body language and presence and are the kind of people who are completely aware of every moving piece in an office and can scan the room and see the different moving parts and can understand what's happening and then can walk in a room and have a presence and like you said can kind of command an audience and have that moment that's an that's the theater of management so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they've been a master of that theatre of management that's not autocratic leadership per se. They're not driving home that kind of let's do it this way. They've become quite nuanced and clever. All of a sudden, like you said, they're a square on a screen and they can't survey mm -hmm. anymore. They can't see yeah. the moving pieces. So all the secret sauce that they've developed over a career, all of a sudden vaporised overnight. And they've gone... Trapped in, trapped in their box. Trapped in the box. And they're left going... Look, I don't want to be one of these assholes that 
gets everyone back to work. But to be quite frank, I can't do my job because my job is to scan and survey and have a presence and be mm-hmm. visible. And the best I can do is literally just crash into people's teams meetings and say, hi, how are you going? I'm going to watch you. <laughs> and they'll sit there yep. and silently observe the conversation on a Zoom, but it's not the same. Um, no, I, I, I think yeah. there are mechanisms to solve that digitally, yeah. um, but, but nobody... Yeah. Uh, it's a it requires a massive reimagination of what it does. these kind of collaborations look like and, and i yeah. haven't seen many people go down that pathway yet yeah no even even something as simple as just doing rounds you know where you give each individual a minute to talk rather than leave digital <laughs> open space for the you know the most extroverted person to swallow up all the air and just simple structures like well now you have a minute so really think about what you're going to say because that's all you've got before we move on. And that person's got a minute. And whether you structure it with the extroverts going first because they can think on their feet and the other introverted people need a little bit more time to put it all together, at Mm. least everyone gets that sort of democratic space of just a minute to say what they need to say where, you know, but people don't do that. Like I I don't know how many, uh, I, I couldn't even imagine how many virtual meetings I've had in the last two years and I've never seen rounds done once. Yeah, so I, I that that's a, certainly something that needs to be done. Uh, we we work on Price's Law. Um, I don't, are you aware of Price's Law? No, um, no. So no. the square the square root of the total number of people in the meeting do half the work. <laughs> okay, so if you've got a meeting of twenty five people, and and this this will resonate. So if you've got a meeting of twenty five people on the screen, five people will do half the talking, mm-hmm. and the other yep. twenty will do the other half of the talking between them. Okay, so the bigger the meeting, the 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 the, the worse the ratio becomes. Yes. So what yeah. you're trying to do, what what we always try and do is, okay, how do it, it, what what's the best number of people? Well, it's four because the square root of four yeah. is two. So if two's doing half the work, then the other two are doing half the work. So mm-hmm. everyone's and so what you're looking at doing is, if you're ever having big meetings, you're looking at breaking that, and the technology is there to do it. You're looking at breaking them out into small groups of four where they can all explore yeah. different concepts. And then you're in the, the bounded rationality space where bias gets solved because you've got, if you say you've got the say 24, so you've got six teams of four, all exploring the concept, they're all gonna come up with different possible solutions because each team is biased and, and, and their interpretation of reality is, is, is located within that team and their experience. And then you can go back to the, the main one and everybody can be sharing this kind of, um, that they're thinking. And the more opportunity, the more the more of these possible interpretations you get, even though most of them are going to be wrong or flawed or partial, <laughs> the greater chance you're going to make the right decision. Mm. And, and that's the kind of stuff that you can play around with. And what you can really do if you're playing around with it well is make sure that you've got an incredibly uh, dis- multidisciplinary, transdis- transdisciplinary kind of team and, and you're including them in the process by, by putting them in, a, in, a, in an environment where it's not scary to voice anything. Yeah. And then you're yep. bringing them back again. So that it, it's very possible to do. And then you just need a, a, your, your sort of magnetic leader. Well, mm. they can be they can be the facilitator of the overall and, and, and sort of, you know, pull out questions and, and mm. oh, that's really interesting. Can you go into when you're back in the plenary sessions? Mm. And so it's, there's so much possibility. Mm. Uh, in the technology but what you need is leaders trained and one of the things we try and we're trying to work on at the moment is train leaders how to use tiktok yep because yeah. their digital literacy is so bad mm. 
that they're unable to do that that magnetic kind of sense making that, that you're talking about which is incredibly valuable mm. but they could still do it with a with a bit more digital literacy and then suddenly all the problems seep away because you yeah. can go wow, wow we can do the collective stuff digitally yeah across the globe better yeah. or at, close to as well as we can do it actually face to face but that it's the methodology that's lacking and it's interesting that you say that because you even see the expertise turn up in the tools and the technology, right? It's like you'll suggest a platform and now it will be like that thing's crap and it's terrible until you teach them how to use it and they become somewhat expertise in it. And then, oh, it's magnificent. It's fantastic. So you even get the expertise and that mindset of that heroic kind of autocratic control come in even into the selection of tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't, it's unless it's you know Microsoft PowerPoint that we've been using for seventy years. PowerPoint's I'm not, interested not in that it. bad. <laughs> well, I think all you Maybe need I'm is my bike. All, all you need is a video tech and a chat box, and you can do yeah. all of this. That's all yeah. you need. Yep. It's it's really it's just the use of the tool. Anything else is just. And I've used things like Miro and Mural and this kind of stuff. And it yep. just adds complexity to the overall discussion mm. and, and, and things. So you, you don't, it's quite fun to use and you can use it for the right tasks. But ultimately, all you need is what we've always needed is are we talking to each other and are we taking notes? Mm. And if we are, then guess what? We can come up to so we, we can come up with some interesting solutions. Yeah. One of, one of the reasons I ask about agency, and it's one of those things that um I think it's probably more of an observation that I'm busy trying to solve at the moment more than anything else is, is um, particularly in those democratic environments and particularly now where we've got such a, an enormous focus on inclusion and making sure that we've got, that people are being heard and that we're giving people a chance to have a say. Um, you, you run the risk and forgive me because I come, I come from an arts and, and comms background. So this plays out significantly in that space. It may not necessarily in other spaces, but um, if you just take the law of averages and you just take everyone's concepts and ideas and average them um, and say, well, we're, we're going to develop good work, you immediately, it, it's safe to assume you cancel the brilliance, right? And so if you take that model into an ad agency, you produce almost no good ads, like ever, right? Um, and so I'm left thinking about, and maybe the answer is your two pizza teams. It's the four people in the team and all the rest of it. But when we think about agency and teams and democratization of work and leadership structures and, and how we're dealing with emergent work and all the rest of it, how do we create a space for the brilliance while being leading democratized teams? Because you're right. It, it, it gets, yeah, it gets the best performance, but... How do we also ways, get two ways of doing it? I think and yeah. so I've worked with both of these ways, and, and so one mm-hmm. of them is 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 my my radical extra step in design thinking, which yep. I've never seen anyone else but me do. Oh, I'm listening. But but this is yeah. um, this is this is so yeah yeah you go what what my challenge with design thinking is right it's 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 a useful methodology to sort of you know mm-hmm. get the empathy and all of the kind of stuff going on, but what you always get a consensus result. Mm-hmm. Always, I've never seen. And the first design thinking workshop I intended, I, I before I knew how to do it myself, 
everybody, everyone came up with the same idea. It doesn't matter which table it was like. (laughs) This is is totally useless because if everyone comes up with the same idea, it's not. Why are we doing it in the first place? Why are we doing it in the first place? So so what I do, and and, um, so you go through the the early stages and then you get these opportunities to vote on other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. so you'll, you'll, you'll have a, Two or two, and this bit I've other, I've seen other people do. So this is not me. You've got, you know, you'll everyone you'll have an idea in your hand, mm-hmm. and you'll compare it with somebody else's idea, and you'll give it a score out of nine. The, the comparison. So one could score nine, the other one could score zero, or one could score five, the other one could score based on how good an idea you think it is. You're, you're, you're still rank, you're ranking the ideas one above the other, mm-hmm. and then what they do at the end, the, 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 what I've seen in the other the other people doing this is they just collect the, the six ideas with the highest score. Right. I said, no, okay, you actually need to collect the ideas with the biggest range of marks. So when some people, you've got five or six people giving it an eight and a nine, and five or six people giving it a zero or a one, that's your sweet spot idea. Polarization. Half yeah, the people yeah. understand it and think it's amazing, and the other half don't get it. Mm. Because that's the idea that not everyone's going to have, and that's the likelihood that that's, that's the key one. Yeah. And that's all I do is, like, collect the ones with the... The biggest the range. Widest that's range. A fantastic insight. That's great. So that's the first thing. Mm. So that's the design thinking. The other way of doing it, which I think is even more uh, effective, and we've already gone into the sort of notion of small teams, right? So you, you, here's here's a here's a problem situation. So we're going to extract the problem, and then we're going to try and solve the problem. So you go through that as a plenary, and you can mm-hmm. you can do it in all, all kinds of ways. But then when you've got the small teams, and you can have teams of three or four. That would be the, the the best number for me. And and you're trying to do some co-creative work, and there's a bunch of techniques. But you're you're ending up with with either everybody or every team coming up with an idea. Mm-hmm. And so say you've got tw- you say you've got ten teams, you've got you've got ten ideas. Mm-hmm. And then you have to do the safe to fail stuff. Okay. And that's when you sort of, you're starting to present your ideas to other teams. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you say, right, um, this is what we're going to do. And the other team's job, it's a bit like the, the Pixar um, the Pixar method where they show the first, first draft of the Pixar film to everyone. And they tear it apart. So the other team's job is to tear apart your idea and yep. illustrate where it is going to fail. Mm-hmm. So you've got teams presenting. So you've now got five. You've got groups of two, two teams, so five groups of mm-hmm. presenting each other's idea, and they go, "Oh, it's going to fail here. It's going to fail here. It's going to fail here." Okay, and then you go and rewrite how you're going to do it, and then you go and present to another team, and the same thing happens. And eventually, there are less and less ways that this idea can fail, and yep. there are clues as to whether it's working because you've got to, you've got to say, "Here's here's the clues whether it's working. Here's the clues that whether it's failing. If it fails." Mm. How do we stop it without it costing us too much money or time? Yep. And if it works, how do we add extra resources to it rapidly? Well, that's good because you've got all these other teams with failing ideas. So we just, and then you've got to get, <laughs> then you've got to get rid of the, the, the ownership. You've got to try and get a co-creation model. And mm. that's where this break, this is where the, the teams talking to each other happens because they all feel they've contributed to each other's ideas yeah. rather than my idea is the best one. Yep. And then you get to a point, and, and the standard thing is, right, two of these things seem to be working. Mm-hmm. A couple of them back burner just in case. And then mm-hmm. six six are just patently not going to work, so we suddenly <laughs> can throw resources of, of people into yeah. the ideas that have worked. So that, that's what I would prefer to do. And I think in a day you can go from problem situation to 
here are here are 10 action plans that we're going to follow tomorrow with all the clues set in place. Uh, and then we can meet up again in, in a couple of weeks to, to look at the clues and to which ones we're, we're going to go to. I, I don't think it takes very long at all. No. Um, I, think, I think the secret sauce in that is actually the resilience in the face of critique. Hmm. Like um, there's the old story about uh, Airbnb during their Y Combinator accelerator running out of ideas during their growth hacking and they would got to find ways, got to find ways, got to find ways. And they're just trying like idea after idea, day after day after day. And they're just, they're just running thin. And then one of them decides that they've found a backdoor through the API into Craigslist. And that exploded mm-hmm. how people found Airbnb and they could find an uptick in adoption. And it's, it's, it's actually like in the science of ideas, running out of ideas is part of the process of actually getting because it drops your inhibitions and you start to go, ah, oh, look, we've just run out of ideas. So just chuck that one in. And all of a sudden people start building on top of that and you've got the ability to flesh it out. But if you haven't, to your point, if you haven't torn down the idea and asked someone to reconstruct it with new constraints and then done that again, a couple more times, then you're not in a position to drop that inhibition and say, actually, what if we just tried this? What if we did it this way? What if we thought about it inside out? Mm. Those kind of things get the ideas to the right point and, and give, like you said, give the co-ownership as well in the process because no one person's being the hero either. Yeah, and, and the, so the more you can do that, and there's a bunch of techniques to, to, to get. Mm. And so, so the whole process mm. is full of energy and laughter. Mm. Yeah. Even when people are taught tearing down your ideas, you know, you mm. can do things, you get it right. Okay, when, you're, when they're tearing down your ideas, you have to turn your back from them so that they, they can't see your faces. <laughs> and people find that funny, and they, but then they can take notes because they're not looking. There's, there's all kinds of things that you do. The challenge yeah. always is to do the work because people, because yep. you, you go, people don't understand why that works. Mm. So mm. trying to get somebody to bring you in and then you get people who are so resistant at the beginning. So you've got you've got to do some storytelling and some model, you know, just some 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 interesting modeling at the beginning to get them on board. And then once you've warmed them up, then then you can sort of go. But selling mm. selling it to um to a very traditionalist organizations who think a meeting is is again computer screens up around a table is incredibly <laughs> difficult to do. Um and and that's one of the biggest challenges. So you look at the digitalized world and then you look at all they've done is create the exact same meeting structures that they had in the office and they've they've imposed them into the into the or injected them into the digitalized environment and and it's 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 just and the digitalized environment I'm a, I'm a big fan of um of kind of Mary Aitken cyber cyber effect work where she basically says the cyber effect both makes the good seem better and the wor- and the bad seem worse the bad seem worse <laughs> Um, so yeah. you're getting you're getting the amplification of all the bad, yeah, um, and that's that's uh, and that's leading to sort of burnout and and boredom and apathy and and etc. Because these meetings are autocratically run generally. Yep. Um, you know, here's the agenda. I'm in charge, and you're just seeing this 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 amplification of all of the bad. But if mm. you put in a good meeting structure, mm. you get the amplification of all the good when it happens mm. online as well. Totally. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more actually. And there's there's so much to be gained from like it, it, even the littlest, tiniest things of, of even just efficiency as a leader in saying, look, I'm going to document this online 
And so the, the notes I can get goes straight into a collaborative spreadsheet or straight into a collaborative whiteboard or whatever, so that mm. you're not then handing this thing you've just done to your assistant to say, go write these notes up um, mm. so that we can share it with the rest of the team. It's like the minutes are instantly available mm. to everyone who is a part of it and they can immediately go away and think about it. You know, it's mm. little tiny efficiencies like that. Like you said, it's, it amplifies the good. Yes, it does amplify the bad. So, so in terms in terms of the learning kind of, I go right back to my initial sort of job of, te- of teaching and, and, and education and stuff. So in terms of the learning models, what you're trying to do is create as active passive learning. Mm-hmm. So you're getting ex- people with expertise telling you stuff, and then you're discussing the expertise, and then you're and then your group discussing it, and then you're going back into another expert giving you their perspective. So so that's mm-hmm. the active passive. So if you mm. have active, if you have passive but no active, mm. you, you don't really learn very much because you get bored because you're listening for two hours. <laughs> and if you yeah. have act, if you have active with no passive, you go off in radical, strange directions. You're you're not grounded. And then yeah. what you just mentioned is you go off and you think about it. Well, this is this is sort of percolation where where the actual really good idea might pop into your head on a sh- your Friday morning shower. Mm-hmm. where it's all percolating in your head and you're sort of going and it's like a coffee percolation it's just like oh wow now it's ready and, and you don't know when it's going to pop in and this is where work mm. this is how work should spread into the rest of your life it shouldn't be spreading into the rest of your life because the technology is blurring the work-life boundary but there will be moments in the rest of your life where you're just doing things you need to do or you're enjoying like a walk in the country mm. and suddenly your brain is like and you go oh wow i should do that and it can happen anywhere and that, mm. that's where work life, um, the work-life boundary should be blurred. But what's actually happening is it's all the tech, the, the, the tech that's, that's preventing us from living actually a meaningful home life. That, that's, it, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So what you're trying to tell us, if we want to have a really effective leadership retreat, we should just have group showers. That's... <laughs> um... <laughs> that's wasn't, wasn't that Annie, Annie McBeal and, and, and the... Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you oh, are right though a lot of it does come for those in those places where we're disconnected from the actual content and context and just like like you said it's percolated for a while and it just pops up to and the I'm, surface I'm a big that. fan of the interleaving of, 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 of stuff as well so rather than a linear learning model where you just go right here's the beginning and then we're going to take you to the end is you just throw stuff at people and mm, let them yeah. put it together in their head in a way that makes sense to them and that's suddenly when you get amazing interpretations that you would never have you know, because if you're if you're taking it on the linear pathway, their interpretations are likely to be the same as yours. Mm-hmm. But if you're throwing yep. at them in all kinds of order, and they come up with yep. a different interpretation than you would ever get, so you go, "Wow, okay, that we'll do that there." So well, it's interesting. Um, I'm doing a, a piece of work at the moment, mm-hmm. and that we're just sending out stuff to some leaders to say, you know, go and have a conversation with your manager and bring out a topic that's core to the business and core to yourself that you've got the ability to have some influence over. And we're going to apply the, our content to that so that you've got some contextual application for it. And it's just interesting to see that, you know, in a program that talks about complexity and uncertainty and how do we manage that and how do we manage VUCA that, you know, the senior managers want and like a bullet, like what we talked about earlier, it's like a bullet point kind of reference to why why they need the business challenge and like well, you know that's not you're removing the uncertainty from the challenge by being too over prescriptive from the start the whole point of it if you're not going to teach them any new what why, why go there at all mm. in the end yeah and, and and i think 
So what, what I experience, if you're, you're doing the same thing, you, you probably experience the same thing. Whenever you teach something that has a bit of tension in it, this mm. is not e- this is not easy. Mm. You, you you yes, and you will lose some students because they're not ready for it, and that's fine. They might be ready for it yep. in two years' time. But mm. what you will do is you'll find the people who are craving it, mm. and you go right. Well, give them the work mm. because they're they're yeah. the ones who are they're they're, they're they're grabbing the tension, saying, "Oh my god, this is what I've been absolutely wanting in in, totally. in programs for years, and now I've got the chance to wrestle with it." Mm. And it, and you've got people who aren't. And guess what? That tells you who's ready for your next leadership position and helps you do some career planning. And then the ones who aren't, you go, "Well, okay, maybe." So it's possible that in two years' time you will be and we can build you up, or it's possible that you've reached a level and promoting you would be a problem. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that that kind of stuff is is I think necessary. And it's really difficult to teach high tension learning because people want edutainment. Yes. Um, well, edutainment, that's right. Leader, yeah, leadership, leadership, but, entertainment. <laughs> and on that, let's just talk for a second about what this what this changes in terms of the expectations on leaders. Like one of the things that's bringing to mind is actually a piece of work I did um, with a school and they were bringing in a new approach to education. And you think of it, what's made me think about it is think about that linear path of, of, um, of leadership and how people might peel off in various directions. And we've had a linear path of education for a very, very long time. And we know that the different learning dispositions um, either work with that well or don't work with that very well. And so we're coming up with new ways of education, particularly at the junior school and early learning space at the moment, but eventually it will make its way up through each. And this particular, this was a, a, um, a scholar out of Oxford was talking about how, um, how really the cl- clinically speaking, like um, not clinically, what am I talking about? Um, the research work that they've done has identified that the most effective way to break open that whole, I guess, um, the whole path of education to be more inclusive of different learning styles and to be more effective with any learning style has been the concept of what they call sustained shared thinking. And they, they, they talk about sustained shared thinking as though it's similar to servant leadership, but probably more expanded and more of a principles-based thing is to say, instead of saying you should learn this, let's ask a bunch of really active questions and then be passive and watch them learn. And so you're, you're in there and you're sharing the thinking and you're understanding what they're trying to achieve and you're asking loaded questions to get them to go towards a certain point. And we see that in lead, good leaders know how to do that in a work environment or whatever. The other thing that this particular piece of research found out is it's one of the hardest things for a human being to do for a long period of time. Like to ask mm. a teacher to sh- sustain shared thinking for a six-hour day is almost impossible. Some mm-hmm. people in the court, some people in the test could do it for three to four hours and then they'd be spent. Other teachers could do it for nine minutes mm-hmm. and then they'd be done for the day. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. What is like that for me was a big aha moment. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, the, the fabric for teaching is changing. The kind of people it's expecting of itself is changing. Is that the same case for leaders? Well, you're, go- you're going down a really interesting path here. So what you're going down is, is one of the pathways of what the future of work looks like, mm-hmm. which is um, everything we do is meaningful all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's the shared, shared learning, the, 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 the teaching of shared learning, and, and this kind of, so all of our work is, is totally meaningful. And anything that's routine, 
is going to be um, automated away. So AIs mm-hmm. and bots and things. Yep. And then we only and all we do is is do uh, meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Well, you've just described what meaningful work all the time looks like. Yeah, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Okay. You, you, you imagine a call center worker where mm. all of the basic questions are, are now being dealt with by, dot, by bots and mm. every call they have is a high trauma call. Mm. Mm. And you've got to do that for eight hours straight. Mm. You imagine what, what yep. that's going to do mentally and physically and, and, and physiologically yep. for that person. Yep. It's going to be hell. Mm. So we haven't thought that through. Mm. Now, I think there are ways in which you could do the shared learning with the, with the teaching, but it, but we, we need to be really clear as to as to what that and, and, and almost you're pulling the teacher. I mean, I, I'll just talk about my own facilitation. Yeah, go. I, I did one as a school as well. And we were doing the future strategy of, of the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I didn't do they got I got the storytelling done at the beginning, which was done by the teachers and, and the principals and, this, and and they got student stories. And, and then they were some of them, you know, they did it incredibly well. I didn't really help them just that that much. I said, I want stories about this and stories about that. And and they I mean, I felt they having had nothing to do with the school until this moment. I felt proud of their achievements because it's yeah. like, wow. But also the, the pain at where they'd failed. I mean, it was a really emotional experience, even for someone who hadn't been part of it. So they, you got that kind of deep engagement. I did a 20-minute presentation on, on contemporary models of change and strategic change. Um, and then and then we presented this is this is the, the new strategy so that they were sort of got, got to the five mm-hmm. things that they were, the five pathways they were trying to deal with. And then I just gave them the shared learning tasks to do. Mm-hmm. And all I did was walk around. I did like 20,000 steps walking around this thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I barely had to say another thing because mm. they, once you get them invited, and then you pull them out and go, right, okay, this is stage one. And then you, you've quieted them all and go, right, this is what you're doing next. Mm. And they all go off and do it. And then they come back and then you go, right, this is what you're doing now. And, and I, you know, literally, I did a lot of walking which was mm. good for my weight, um, but I didn't do, um, I, I didn't do more than about, yeah, 25, 30 minutes of speaking in, in sort of a three hour workshop. Um, and then we ended up with all of these kind of action plans and, and ideas and, and stuff. So I think it, it's about the teacher no longer, again, it's the same as leaders. It's, it's you're no longer in control. Mm. And actually, a lot of it is becoming more passive and, 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 and allowing the kind of energetic complexity emerge. Mm. Seeing the patterns where you can inter- where you need to intervene where they don't really understand what they're doing. But other than that, just trust the emergence mm. and then be able to, you know, and you can just sit, sit and not keep the, you know, exercise and not use the brain. But then when you go and inject yourself back in, then, you're, then you've got to be ready to, to go again. Um, and that that's really what contemporary work looks like. I don't know if you've, if you've read um, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Mm. And, uh, yep. He basically says like that, that high complex work, sort of four or five hours. Most days you can only do four and, and mm. maybe yeah. five hours, and, and unless you get into the state of flow, which is you can't prepare for and you can't plan. And, 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 and mm. you're sort of burnt out after that and you've got to go and do something else. Mm. So the way, and this is the way I plan my own day, I will, I sort of tend to wake up about half past six. Um, we'll just catch up on the morning news from half past six to half to seven and then work pretty much from seven to 11 without a break. Mm. Yeah. Just mm. with coffee and tea and teas and things. And then after that, I know that it's going to be pretty unlikely that I can sit and do heavy focus work. 
And so then I'll yeah. do uh, meetings and, and I'll, I might go for a walk. I might, you know, there's a whole bunch of, and I'll do the, the admin kind of stuff in the afternoon. And then, you know, that kind of works, I think, scientifically, and it definitely works for me. Yeah. So it's around yeah. how do you how do you manage what the science says about our brains mm. and our energy levels mm. and um, collaborative kind of activities and, and things like that in a way that allows you to really add value mm. without burning out. Mm. And that, it, that's key. I find it really interesting that you describe that because it's almost uh, almost the same practice I've got. But what I've found has been really interesting is I've got a client in the US and so having to get up and start those conversations at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and then drop it context switch and move to deep work means that the interruptions already happened. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then you don't get that deep work or you certainly don't get the flow state you've been looking for. And then you get to lunchtime and you're just as fried. And all of a sudden, without having, like like you said, most efficient would be to spend, at least for me as well, would be to spend that first couple of hours, few hours with a cup of coffee and just smash out the work and then move all the, all the meetings to the other side. It's an energy modulation conversation to then go, I can't do this in certain circumstances because I have to take calls or I have to context switch three times before 10 o'clock or whatever it might be. I need to watch my energy or I will burn out as well yeah i think i think you're yeah i mean you're, you're looking at the complexity the overall complexity of the day and, and this is when you you need to go beyond um the current way of of thinking about um work is is that it's there are days where you can't do what you need to do um mm. in the way that you want to do it and and you've got to look at well, where, where's the value i'm creating today mm. Where's the value I'm creating? You know, if I have to do this, this four hours of, of stuff with the states, mm. you know, my, my day might be then four hours of stuff with the states, um, a few hours break, and then doing some extra work in the afternoon. But for me, when yeah. you're, and this is where the extended intelligence lies. For me, mm. you've also got to understand the science around how you might keep yourself well mm. around uh, uh, living a, a sort of a meaningful, cognitively powerful day. And that means understanding nutrition, that means understanding exercise, that means understanding uh, role, self-roles and, and, and context switches. And there's a whole bunch of things that are, that are barely ever taught mm. in, um, in any kind of leadership or management education. Totally. But, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, had, had I been taught early about um, energy modulation and context switching and uh, storytelling and... Um, I mean, everything we've talked about in leadership or management education, you would have jumped in it with totally different feet and formed early habits with a totally mm. different worldview. And a lot of leaders now are having to unlearn a whole bunch of bad habits with the new way of working that um, because they're having to learn almost by osmosis that you actually have to watch how often you spend with one particular activity or another, or you really should take an hour and a half and go for a walk with the dog. Like you actually need it, 
you know. So, so I, um, I'm gonna, I, I will become more rad, even more radical. I, I think that the, the current model, so, so authentic leadership would be the, the trendiest kind of model of leadership, where it's like <laughs> look, look deep inside yourself and, and mm. find your true values and things. And then you've got the sort of the, the same kind of thing about authenticity and, and the mm. psychological kind of. Realm. I don't think they're wrong. I think they're dangerously wrong. Mm. Because I don't think the notion, I first of all, I don't think there's a notion of a single self that doesn't play multiple roles in very different contexts and very different ways. <laughs> and, 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 and even thinking there is causes division. So mm. the way that thinking there is, so first, first of all, trying to do it yourself causes you deep harm because you're unable to play the, mm. the, the roles according to the context because you're like, no, no, I'm always like this. Mm. Like, you can't always be like that because you've mm. got to play different social roles. And the second challenge is then um, when you look at somebody else through the psychometric lens or the, the, the traits and the types and that kind of stuff. So DISC is a perfect example. And you sort of go, oh, they're a red and they're a blue. What mm. you're doing is you're looking at their behaviors out of context. Mm. Oh, they're behaving like this because they're a red. You're just looking at their, their, their type and trait. But when you look at your own behavior, you go, well, I'm behaving like this because of this contextual situation. Mm. Um, and, mm. and so you're, you're, you've got a gap between understanding your own behavior and everything that, that the psycholo psychologist and the behavioral stuff within, within um, organizational science and development tells you. And that, that is deeply problematic because it's creating yeah. division. While Again, it's a system of, of, of harm dressed up as a system of health. It's, it's creating division. Mm. whilst you know, ostensibly teaching you how to understand self and others. And, and it, mm. it's, just, it's got to go. It's no longer fit for purpose. Mm. And I would say the same thing for culture. It's just not for fit, fit for purpose in these networked worlds where we're all, um, you know, we're just playing different yeah. roles the whole time or we're embedded in different systems and we have to play, you know, and, and anyone who's watched some of these modern films where you, like Avatar, you know, you've got the person who's not in, the avatar and the person who is the avatar um mm. Mm. Uh, uh ready player one you know where mm. they, they go yeah. into go into the virtual world and, and and they're living completely different virtual lives in completely mm. different environments where they then they live in their, their real worlds mm. and you're like right you've got to be aware that that that's not just a metaphor mm. that's what human existence looks like it's not that you're in a virtual world playing a virtual avatar but as you move from the the, the work roles you play to the social roles it's a different version of you mm. it's not that there's one authentic version that always needs to be the same and if you think there is it's going to start causing you harm mm. it's about yeah. you, you have an understanding of who you want to be and who you want to become which is sort of authenticity and you can each of the roles you can join with that understanding of self and say right how much of my the person i want to be fits with this role and how much do I have to follow social expectations? Yeah. And you're playing and melding. And so when you talk about organizational theater, that's what it is. Mm. How yeah. much of self do you put into the role? Mm. And how much don't you? Now, I think when is it harmful and when isn't it harmful? And all of these kind of things need to be going on. One of the things yeah. we've, we've lost in the last two years is the ceremony of donning that suit and taking it off. So going to work, the commute, whether you're walking to work and it's only two minutes or whether you've got an hour and a half drive ahead of you or you're going to spend two hours on a train or whatever it might be, the actual commute of work is putting on that avatar and then the commute home is taking it off. 
the new world of work now is I open my spare bedroom door and I'm out the door and I'm back at home. And yeah. the, the, the whiplash of that change and not having the ceremony to actually take off that avatar is, is probably my assumption would be it's having, having a part to play there for sure. I think, I think it's, it's, Deeply problematic. This this lack of context switching, and 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 it's you know so so you've got the context switching between the work role and, and, and the home role with the, the commute, which now is literally yeah closing closing the door. And you probably heard my wife talk suddenly in the middle mm-hmm. of this. We're in that kind of situation at the moment. Yeah. So so I don't have total control of my environment. Yeah. Um, and um, you know so you've you've got that that problem with the with with the lack of um adopting new roles. Mm-hmm. You've got the and what happens with Zoom calls? Lots of people are just having back-to-back Zoom calls, so there's not even time to to, to decompress from one Zoom call and determine what role you need to play in the next Zoom call. Mm. Um, and 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 then you've got your partner going, "I don't actually like the work you very much. I thought I was married to somebody completely different." <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so so you're looking at that kind of uh, you know, and and then you go, you need to be aware that that these are different roles and you've got to separate mm. self from role. Mm. And the more you do, and this is a protective device that, that sadly dominant psychological theory is not allowing us to, mm. to access. Mm. And, and I wonder if this is part of that, like precipitating that change away from the eight hour work day and, and, and all the rest of it is, is, is moving. I mean, you've got all those examples of the accounting company and whatnot gone to four-day work weeks and three-day weekends and had productivity uplifts. And certain industries are going to be better at it than others. But I can see where, based on this conversation, you can kind of run time forward and go, well, as situations become more complex and as teams become more complex and more hybridized and whatnot, it becomes more exhausting. And as we learn better tools to modulate our energy in that environment, we're going to start to fight for our time back. And well, that time back, where, yeah. yeah. I think this is where technology, the future of technology could work. Uh, so mm. there's, there's, you know, the, yeah. the current, so what, what you're going to have potentially is, is wearable tech that says, you know what, you're, 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 you've just been doing three hours of cognitively challenging mm. work. I can tell because I'm monitoring your body. Mm. It's time to go and do something else. Yes. Or yep. you've just been in a meeting where your blood pressure's shot through the roof Mm. go and yep. take a walk to calm down mm. so you're, you're gonna and, and organizations are gonna have to be aware of this because i once this tech is is out there they're going to be sued to high heaven for causing harm mm. if you're yeah. wearing it and you've got control and you go look i've just been in this with this manager that you make me sit and have a two-hour meeting with every day and every time it happens my heart my, my blood pressure yeah. goes up and my resting heart rate goes up and then you know mm. cortisol's flooding through my body we've got to do something like this because the data is very clear. It's being caused by the organization. Mm. So here you've got where, where technology is, is going to be properly integrated into, into managing this. Mm. The other challenges I think where, where all of us are doing work is the awareness of what this looks like uh, in terms of how many hours of cognitively complex work you can do per day in an individual and the collective environment. And then, and then really for me, it's, it's moving into that extended environment where it's okay. Well, part of this is, where do I go and learn interesting stuff that I can bring in from different realms? I mean, I've just been reading a book on, on cholesterol, which has taught me stuff around uh, what, what, what's the biggest cause of heart attacks in the world. Mm. It's the forcible repatriation of people. So you restructure their world so there's no sense of belongingness. 
So Aboriginal Australians have the worst heart attack rate in the world because of this. But you just apply that, you apply that to organisations. Yeah. Ongoing restructured transformations where you have no co-creation in it and it's impacting your life. Well, what is that likely to cause? Mm, yeah. much much higher le- levels of heart problems yeah few heart attacks etc if you've got a piece of technology that goes you know what i can see this happening to me My then God. the only answer is going to be co-creation because you've got an ability to control your environment and, and maintain that belongingness mm. um so there, there's some there's some really interesting stuff by going beyond business books most of which are terrible so going yeah. beyond these books and finding insights from mm. other models and, and other ways of exploring and explaining the world that you can bring in to the to the businesses and say right this is stuff that's going to give you an advantage by mm. knowing this mm. uh, the challenge is you've got people who've just been taught traditional mbas and the functional stuff who are not ready to hear this stuff <laughs> and business schools that don't teach it yeah because it's not you know, I mean, none of the business school teachers will be learning this stuff because they're locked into their silos. Yes. So then, yeah. then you, that's that's where I think that the, the future work needs to be done. And I think, you know, I, I think once we get this wearable tech that can do it, mm. that opens the doorway into, well, we've really got to reimagine mm. this because we, we, we cannot be seen to be killing our staff. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and, and beyond that as well, the second we actually have the ability to measure it, is it not negligence then to have not done anything about it? Well, I think I think what you're going to have is, is you're going to have the employees owning the data. Mm. So what you don't want mm. is a world where, where the organisation <laughs> has access to all of that data, but the employees then choosing to share it and saying, yeah. look, look, you know, I was in this meeting from, from 12 till 4 and mm. look at what happened to me. Mm. Mm. Okay? That's right. So and, and if then you get, you know, maybe if it's just one employee, but if it's, Everyone in that meeting goes. Mm. Cortisol was up, um, heart blood pressure was up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that's a that's a moment of harm. Mm. Um, yeah. And then and they they you've got the data then to go. Well, what was going on in the meeting? What was causing it? How do we stop that happening again? And of, of course, then you've also got what really needs to happen is saying, well, if that kind of meeting is causing everybody harm all the way through it, how much value did it create? Yeah, I mean, precisely zero. It probably stripped value because none of them are able to go and do more work now because they're absolutely mm. spent. And so it's actually it's actually stripping value from the organisation. And then that that's where I would like to see technological development going because you're you're able then to sort of to do the the, the kind of stuff that I think we're all trying to do. But you've got the data saying, look, this is what you're causing. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. So we, whatever, we're at an hour 20, so we're about 15 minutes over our usual length, but the conversation's <laughs> been so good that I thought we'd hang with it. But um, coming to the end, what do you think are the three most important things that people should be focusing on moving in into the okay, future I, of work? I, I will be, I'll, be, I'll be very radical, right? Um, reimagine leadership as collective sense-making. Yep, love it. Um, kill organizational culture and make it something around network narratives or I don't know a, a, a trendy term for it, but it's some kind of complex <laughs> complex adaptive system, network narratives kind of model. Um, yep. And recognize that any form of trying to measure employees' engagement and, and experience is deeply flawed uh, and needs to be removed from the, the equation entirely because actually the, it, it prevents their collective sense-making and decision-making by trying to check how engaged they are the whole time. 
So that's what I would do. Yeah. I mean, the three behavioral shifts um, move from there. Yeah, I love it. And we have a uh, like a like a power round where we go. If you could suggest like or something that someone could do out there to equip them for the future of work and for the transformation of organizations, what would be the one thing that you would give them as like a task for a couple of weeks that you think could aid that? Um, so, I mean, this is literally the coaching I do. Um, so it, it's recognized that you are not a, a single self playing yourself in all of the roles that you play. Rec- really map out the roles you play. Mm-hmm. And how you want how those roles should be played according to social expectations, how much of you you want to put in those roles, and then look at those roles within the systems that you're active you're operating in. Because in each of these systems, you can be rewarded by playing these roles in 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 ways that don't harm you, but also um, positively impact the system. So once you can map out yourself in these in these terms of multiple roles in multiple systems, and work out how you how you create value across all of those roles in all of those systems you're going to be in a really good place so that's the kind of stuff i try and coach people and i think it's the most valuable thing anybody can do is is look at themselves through the lens of roles and systems rather than through the lens of the inner psychology and the authentic self yeah Mm. brilliant thank you so much really appreciate it yeah absolute pleasure it's been a really interesting conversation yeah, I really enjoyed has. it. It's fantastic. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Richard Clayton, for sitting with us today on the What's Next podcast and lending us all your insight about the future of transformation and the future of leadership. It has been an absolute blast. Dave, anything from you to close? He's frozen. No, that's it. <laughs> Technological failure to end. That's always, always yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Once again, thanks for your time. Pleasure. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks for listening. What's Next is brought to you by The Next. We are workplace futurists and transformation facilitators. You can reach us on the web at www.thenextnxt.com.au. Please ensure you subscribe to our channel to ensure you don't miss our up-and-coming episodes.